With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hi, this is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief at the New Books Network. And I'm here to tell you that we work very hard on getting good audio, but it doesn't always work out as we had planned. So just to warn you, the audio in the interview you are about to listen to is really not very good. It's not up to our standard. Nonetheless, I thought I would post it because there may be some of you who want to listen to it, even though it sounds like, well, it just doesn't sound very good. So with our apologies, here's the interview. Welcome to the inaugural podcast of New Books in East European Studies. I'm your host, Hugo Lane. Today, we had the pleasure of talking to Professor Louis Menashe about his new book, Moscow Believes in Tears, which is about Soviet and Russian film. It's published by New Academia Publishing. In full disclosure, Louis and I have known each other for a long time, and even before reading his book, I'd learned a great deal about Soviet and post-Soviet film from talking with him. The phone connection was not as good as I would have liked. Nonetheless, I hope you will enjoy our, the interview. Today we have the pleasure of having Professor Louis Menashe here, and uh, he, we'll be talking to him about his new book, Moscow Bleeds in Tears, Russians and Their Movies. Hello, Louis. How are you doing today? Yeah, greetings. It's a pleasure to be uh, with you, and um, I hope your uh, listeners and uh, your um, constituency understands that I have the pleasure of being your colleague at Polytechnic, and not only that, but being your office mate at Polytechnic. I should say that I think when uh, we were uh, together, it was the Polytechnic University. It has since become the Polytechnic Institute of New York University. Yes, no, it was a pleasure, and actually, you know, uh, uh, what I haven't had a chance to tell you is you're actually going to be the first interview for new books in Eastern European Studies. Um, that's a little surprise uh, for you, but uh, and it, but you were one of the people when I first saw your, that your book came out last fall, and then I um, was got involved with this project. I thought of you immediately. And I, uh, you know, was really glad to see you know your book on uh, movies come out. Well, let me in turn congratulate you on this venture uh, that you're handling, and uh, I'm very, very happy to uh, be a part of it. Now, you were mentioning you know, sharing an uh, sharing a uh, office with each other, and uh, I, one of the things that I noticed was the picture here of Irina Kubchenko, whom you interview in this book, or the, your interview with her is included in the book, and uh, yeah, it's a very striking picture. Well, yeah, you, you remember it was um, a, a photograph of her uh, as part of a Moss film, the Moss film, the Moscow film studios, Moss film calendar, a publicity calendar, and it's a very striking um, photograph of her looking quite glamorous, actually, which is uh, kind of ironic because most of the parts she plays in the theater and, uh, and on film are, are on the downside. Uh, she's, she's always playing uh, sad or troubled uh, women. Uh, but uh, she's an extraordinary talented, extraordinarily talented uh, actress. And as I discovered in my interview of her, 
in the section, uh, in the concluding section of the book on interviews with film people, with Russian uh, Soviet film people. And I can't, can't help but tell you about a wonderful moment completely unrehearsed that took place during my interview with her. Um, we got on the subject of uh, feminism, <clears throat> the behavior of uh, Russian men, and uh, uh, related uh, topics. She, of course, announced, uh, which is something I hear often from Soviet and post-Soviet women, that they are not feminists, they hate the term feminism, and so on. Uh, and uh, in the middle of the discussion, the, I think the phone rang, or maybe I, I had to make a phone call and discovered that I was, quote, on for dinner, unquote, with my uh, son, uh, who was only about nine or ten, I think, at the time. Uh, and I came back and told Kupchenko that, you see, uh, we men in the United States take over uh, kitchen responsibilities and other household responsibilities, to <laughs> which uh, she smiled and said, well, I congratulate uh, American uh, women for uh, having such a privilege, <laughs> which, which she, as a Soviet woman, did not experience. No, I suppose she did not. Uh, the celebrating uh, women, International Women's Day by making all the cakes and such like that. Yeah, open gestures like that. Yes. Um, well... Uh, before we go forward, uh, why don't you just tell us a little bit about how you got involved with uh, Soviet and Russian film? Okay, well, um, as you know, you, uh, I'm a historian of, um, of Russia and the Soviet Union, at least that's uh, my professional designation. My specialties were the late Russian period, especially the reign of Nicholas II. And, um, and also the revolution and the revolutionary uh, movement that preceded the great October Socialist Revolution of 1917. And necessarily, uh, uh, I had to spill over um, in my teaching and in my writing into the Soviet period. And I discovered at Polytechnic where uh, students were primarily interested in their understandably so interested in keeping up with their science and technology uh, uh, courses, not terribly interested in Russian or Soviet history. Um, uh, I would add a, um, a caution about that in that when Soviet uh, emigre students began appearing uh, at the Polytechnic, uh, in the early, late, late 70s and early 80s, due to the more liberal immigration policies of the Brezhnev regime at the time, uh, there was a very, very definite interest in Russian and Soviet history. Um, but whether it was for the Soviet emigrant students or for my um, uh, Brooklyn and New York area students at Polytechnic, I discovered that there was a very, very positive response to my showing films for particular topics illustrating Russian and Soviet history. Um, most notably, the Battleship Potemkin to illustrate the Revolution of 1905. Um, Eisenstein's um, Ten Days That Shook the World, or October in the original Russian title, to illustrate the revolution of 1917, and so on. And I, I, I did this only uh, at certain points during each semester in uh, the history of the Soviet Union or the history of Tsarist uh, uh, Russia. Uh, and then uh, it occurred to me that I should probe this whole area further, and I began offering courses on particular topics, um, the revolution of 1917, Stalinism, uh, the Second World War, Perestroika, and so on, with films as the primary medium. To be sure, I always announced to my classes that these were not film courses where we would be studying 
I didn't know the uh, the last bit of that story. Of course, I knew about the, your involvement with Cineast and recognized that a lot of the uh, uh, the pieces in here actually were originally published in Cineast. Yeah, uh, I, I think probably about um, oh, uh, in terms of pages, uh, about uh, oh, about forty five percent of the material uh, originated in Cineast magazine. Uh, you know, given that this is a collection of writings on Soviet and post-Soviet film, it, you know, it's probably uh, not possible to, you know, talk about a single overarching thesis. But what do you see are the main themes of the book? Well, um, I, I like to clear that this is not a film studies, a film scholarship kind of uh, work.
represented by certain films. Um, among them, a, a very, very important film uh, that, um, that, that sort of was one of the keynotes at Perestroika, a Georgian film, Soviet Georgian, called Repentance, uh, which was essentially a kind of uh, dark fable about Stalinism. Uh, another such film comes in the post-Soviet period, Nikita Mikhailkov's Burned by the Sun, which won an Academy Award uh, in uh, 1994. And um, using those films as, uh, in my writing, the intent was to deal with them as historical subjects. What were they telling us, not only about the historical subjects they were dealing with, Stalinism, but something about the time they were made. Um, Repentance by the Soviet Georgian filmmaker Abulazia was a very, very daring step in the direction of confronting the Soviet past, especially its Stalinist past. And uh, it had some trouble in getting released, and ultimately it was released as part of the whole program of Rossos and Perestroika. Um, when was it actually filmed? What's that? When was it actually filmed? It was filmed, I believe, in 1985, if I'm not mistaken. And so right at the edge of you know the Gorbachev era, and so it didn't sit on the shelf like some of the other books you talk, other movies you talk about in the book. Quite right. Uh, it, it took Perestroika, Gorbachev, uh, uh, a new Congress of Soviet filmmakers to finally get off the shelves a whole series of films that were made and then banned by the Soviet regime. They were made, uh, which is kind of interesting, why were they made and how were they made, usually uh, by a certain kind of subterfuge on the part of the directors. Uh, they would tell uh, the, uh, the local party people who were placed at every studio uh, well, this is a film about uh, such and such, describing it as blandly as possible, getting the resources for it, the money, the actors, uh, uh, the, the, the equipment, uh, the cooperation of the studios, going ahead with filming it. And then when uh, the party, the appropriate party committees or censors uh, looked at the films, they said, no, 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 no way we're going to distribute this in the Soviet Union, and they were shelved. Um, and only saw the light of day to mass audiences with the advent of, uh, of Perestroika and the Gorbachev regime. Yes, and you comment, uh, one of the things that I got from reading your book is that you think that a lot of those movies are some of the best made in the Soviet era. Good point. Uh, yes, that's very, very true. Um, uh, among them, I, I would say, was Askoldov's Commissar, which is a, a fascinating, fascinating film, uh, based on a short story by the Soviet writer Vasily Grossman, uh, about how a Bolshevik commissar, woman, female commissar, who is pregnant, is quartered in the home of a poor Jewish family. And, um, and, uh, the, uh, the film, the film was banned for a variety of reasons, uh, one of which was the uh, always present but ne never fully um, uh, vocalized by the Soviet regime of anti-Semitism. They didn't like the idea that the heroes ultimately of this film were Jews. Uh, there are other reasons as well. There are stylistic uh, innovations in the film which... Uh, uh, the state Soviet Party and state bureaucrats did not uh, like. They did not, did not like the message of uh, universal peace and comedy, um, uh, that the international, the famous international, founded by Lenin in 1919, um, should be devoted to the ideas of brotherhood and so on, and not class struggle. Anyway, the film was, was banned. Um, the maker, Askoldov himself, uh, lost his ability uh, by official uh, uh, decree 
to make any further films. Uh, and, um, and, and, and one of the, um, you know, miracles of Perestroika is that films like Asfaldov, uh, Asfaldov's Commissar, uh, come to the surface. There are other, other films as well. Interestingly enough, uh, there was Gleb Panfilov's The Theme, also banned, and also because it had a, uh, as part of its scenario, a Jewish, uh, theme. Um, there are other films for other uh, reasons that were banned as well, and they were finally uh, shown not only in the Soviet Union during the Glasnost period, but abroad as well. Agonia, I think, is one of them. Agonia, the Klimov movie about Rasputin. Yes, uh, 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 titled in the West as, uh, I think, Rasputin, the true story or something. Yeah, there too. That, uh, uh, it's interesting that you mentioned that. Klimov is an extraordinarily talented uh, filmmaker, and he makes this film about Rasputin and Rasputin's influence on the royal family, the family of uh, Nicholas II, and particularly uh, the Tsaritsa or South Alexandra. Uh, and there's no reference to Lenin or Leninism or workers or peasants. It's simply a depiction of the decay at the imperial court uh, in, uh, in 1916, uh, while Russia, while imperial Russia is, is at war and Rasputin himself is um, dominating political affairs due to his connection to the, uh, uh, to the Queen or Tsaritsa. And uh, that, that film, too, was banned um, because, I, I, actually, I interviewed Klimov, and the interview appears in the uh, film, in the book, I should say, uh, and, he, you know, he's not sure why it was banned. Uh, I said, maybe it's because of the sex that was shown. Uh, after all, you cannot have a film about Rasputin without dwelling on the subject of sex. And uh, there were... Uh, uh, there was one scene in particular uh, where a woman is shown uh, naked from the breast up, uh, and in a um, in a flash cut, she's shown in a full uh, frontal body nude shot. And then I asked uh, uh, did it, did um, did he think that that was the reason it was bad because Soviet Soviet films were notoriously chaste. Um, sex uh, was never shown in graphic terms as it was uh, in the, and continues to be in the West. And uh, he thought, no, no, that wasn't uh, the reason. He wasn't quite sure. Um, and it, it, could, it could have something, and this is pure speculation on my part, it could have something to do with the very, very negative portrayal of the Russian ruling class at the time. And although uh, the, uh, the Soviet masters who determined the fate of a uh, film theoretically would not be opposed to that kind of depiction, didn't like the idea of a Russian ruling class being presented as uh, decadent and so on. But that's just speculation on my, on, uh, my part. Yes, it does open up possibilities, doesn't it, uh, if you're doing that. The other thing I wanted to mention about the Grossman, I think, if I recall correctly from the book, you say that it's really, uh, talking about miracles, there was only one copy that he managed to hide. Is that yeah. correct? Yes, yes, that's actually uh, the case. Uh, and, uh, and, and even with the reforms uh, that were engendered by uh, the Gorbachev regime and the uh, Fifth Congress of Russian, or so I should say Soviet filmmakers, um, there was some reluctance to um, you know, release the film, and uh, Askoldov had to make a very, very, very public plea to have it released, and ultimately uh, that was the case. And it, it had a considerable run in the West, including one here in uh, New York. And when it was being shown in New York, I called up, came to New York, and that's how I came to uh, interview him. 
you know, you mentioned we've been talking about Glasgow here, and one of the things that I enjoyed, particularly in the book, you, you know, you've talked about this uh, book as a kind of history, and it's in a, you get a, an interesting history here of Glasnost and the hopes and then the fading hopes about what Glasnost will bring. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I was among those who thought that, uh, hey, uh, Soviet civil society had finally awakened, um, and, uh, and even was to the left of um, Gorbachev, and that um, Soviet socialism would begin to bear a human face. Uh, and like many other uh, fantasies I had about the Soviet Union, then that did not prove to be the case. Uh, what happened, of course, was the unintended collapse of the Soviet Union engendered, um, catalyzed by the Gorbachev reforms. The Tocqueville, you know, and I think I, I may quote this somewhere in the book, the Tocqueville is the great observer of um, of American and French societies in the 18th century um, said that there is no more dangerous moment for a tyrannical regime than when it begins to reform itself. I think one of the things is I, what I was struck by, and I just picked up one of them, uh, where you, you know, sir, there's a theme in some of the early reviews, which are you know, it's a kind of diary of, of watching uh, Russian uh, late, very late Soviet, and then Russian films here in the U.S. Uh, in, the, in the 90s, and you know, you, uh, there's a repeated theme here of not uh, of you know 
suddenly having technology available and the results not being particularly good or having money available. I mean, I re, uh, you have here, uh, just, I just opened it up here to Swan Lake, The Zone, a film by Yuri Yanko. And you point out that Yanko is, uh, was very involved with a key, you know, one of those key, uh, movies of the, uh, uh, of the you know um, period of stagnation, but one of the classic shadows of forgotten ancestors. Uh, but you start out, you know, again, trouble ahead. Canadian, Hungarian, U.S., uh, Swedish, and uh, Dozenko Studios all involved. But it's not joint productions they need. It's not technical hardware and Western sophistication they need. Uh, and you point out that Tarkovsky and some of the others did this with, uh, with much with restraint. It's art they need and not counter uh, statements and counter aesthetics. That's a, that's a very interesting story. Yeah, we'll check the historical details, okay? Mm, okay, well, we won't hold you to them if it's not quite a exact. Uh, memories are part of this, are always going to be with us. Uh, you know, the thing is with the Moscow, you do mention, you know, you don't, I got a feeling at one point you don't seem to like Moscow, please, in tears too much, but you do a, a very interesting uh, comment on it when you're talking about the working class and how that book, or that movie rather, which is also a product of the era stagnation, even though it's, it's really talking about a slightly earlier era, uh, if I recall correctly. It's, it, it was filmed in 79, but is, doesn't it really focus on the early 60s? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, it, it, it covers a whole period of, uh, of time, and, um, and uh, it, it focuses on the rise of an ordinary... Um, 
working girl to position to a position of power uh, within her enterprise. Uh, and um, uh, I, I think they're probably referring to another piece I did where the Soviet working class disappears from films. Uh, earlier, of course, the Soviet work, working class was the collective hero uh, of films, except where Stalin appears and he becomes the hero um, as dominating matters. Uh, but um, later Soviet films and post-Soviet films do not dwell on the working class, and um, this is this is kind of notable. Uh, I think of attitudes of the intelligentsia, who are, after all, the filmmakers, uh, and they're um, perhaps uh, you know disavowing the, tra the traditional emblems of uh, Soviet life, that is to say, the unity of peasants and, uh, and workers, so that when you do see the working class, uh, as in Moscow believes, uh, does not believe in tears, uh, the idea of the film is to get out of the working class and to graduate into the managerial class. And um, there are other ways, I think, in which uh, this uh, sort of um, hostility, if that's not too strong a term, to the working class on the part of Soviet and post-Soviet filmmakers uh, uh, shows up. And I, I, I did a, um, a piece that appeared in, um, in another uh, journal um, called... Uh, Something like buttons, buttons, uh, where are the workers? Is that the title of the piece? Something like that. Um, and then uh, it's interesting with the um, uh, the, the um, glossiness opening to candid representations rather than canned representations of Soviet life. You get a film like Little Vera, uh, made in I believe 1988. Which is a very, very honest and, um, and ugly portrait of uh, the Soviet working class. Um, a, a degraded social life, a degraded family life, um, the presence of uh, alcoholism on a uh, lethal scale, the, the prevalence of violence, uh, and so on. Um, and I, I think. That little era is is um, it's not a great film in its own terms uh, from a variety of points of view, but a very very notable film for um, speaking the truth about the character of Soviet working class life. Uh, when I would ask people, I got interesting responses. I was I was. Uh, <coughs> regularly in the Soviet Union in those days, late, late, early, uh, late uh, 80s and early 90s, one response I got was, uh, uh, it's an ugly film, and uh, we have enough of that in our regular eyes, why do I have to see uh, that film? Um, to other responses, which were, um, and I remember a young party official said to me, when I asked him how accurate was this film, he said, 110 percent accurate. <laughs> um, so I would rank um, uh, Vasily Pichol's Little uh, Era uh, as one of the um, most notable films to come out of the uh, Glasnost period. Yeah, my, my, as you know, my Ukrainian wife Oksana, when I mentioned that early on in our relationship, she said, "Yeah." It's an awful film. And then and I asked her, you mean you didn't like it? She said, no, I liked it, but it was an awful, the, the circumstances in the movie were really awful. And yeah, it's interesting yeah, there, though, you know, the one shining, quasi-shining light, as I think about it, in that family is the brother who has escaped to the managerial class, if I recall correctly. Right, good point. Um, uh, there... You know, there were other films that uh, did not dwell on the dark side, um, even as they, you know, presented some of the uh, dark side. Uh, I would cite in that respect um, uh, Christovlovich's Adam's Rib of 1990, uh, which presents a working-class family. Uh, actually, uh, Mama, 
uh, is a, I think, museum guide. Um, her uh, daughter is a secretary in a, uh, in a, in a Soviet uh, office. Uh, and her other daughter, I think, is, 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 uh, could be a student. And uh, her mother uh, lies uh, mute, having suffered, not explained, but probably the victim of, uh, of, a, of a stroke. So you have three generations living in a um, in a single household, one of those you know small Soviet Moscow apartments, uh, and uh, and a fourth generation is on the way because uh, the young daughter is uh, pregnant out of wedlock. And, uh, uh, there's a touch of alcoholism in it. Uh, there's a touch of sexism uh, in it as uh, one of the daughters' um, bosses has an affair with her and then simply dumps her. Um, there's a touch of violence uh, in it. And yet, uh, and, and this says so much about uh, the Soviet uh, uh, life, uh, you come away with the feeling of um, they will survive. <laughs> yes, well, the survival of the grandmother. I still, you know, there's some scene, I think, towards the end where she reaches for the that bell that she uses to communicate. Quite right. And it sort of brings, if I recall correctly, and it's been, you know, many years since I saw that film. Uh, but I think it sort of brings the family back together in some way. If I, um, but I might, again, I might be making that up entirely. No, no, no. She, she has a mysterious uh, revival. You're, you're quite right. And the film ends on that note, and you get the feeling of, uh, well, these women, all women, by the way, uh, although husbands and ex-husbands uh, appear, uh, these women are going to make it. Uh, and the strength of Soviet women ultimately, some would say, is what kept society together. No, I, yes, I've certainly witnessed that from my own experiences in that part of the world. You know, I was thinking, though, about, uh, you know, this issue of survival, uh, the women, and, I mean, you all, you know, of course, that gets to that point. And one of the reasons I think someone like Krupchenko uh, uh, can be so anti-feminist is it's about it's about getting on with it and surviving. And, you know, the, the things that are needed uh, is a little companionship uh, that so, so often didn't actually come out the way it was supposed to. Uh, but, you know, this, uh, just thinking about, the paradox and why the films developed as they did in the Soviet Union, I think you mentioned that the during the Stalinist period, where you'd think you know, the height of propaganda and you know, still when Lenin's line would resound with people that film was the most important art, why did it grind to a halt? Well, uh, uh, it ground to a halt only uh, after the Second World War, actually, the Great Patriotic uh, War of the uh, uh, Soviet Union, and that reflected, uh, you know, the increasing paranoia and, uh, and, and viciousness of the Stalin regime and of Stalin personally, um, that uh, restrictions on film uh, made it virtually impossible to be creative. And only a handful of films actually were made in the period of the late 40s and uh, early 50s. <coughs> during, during the 1920s and 1930s, some very, very good films uh, were made. Um, by the mid-30s, when uh, the rigidities of <coughs> enforced socialist realism, the official doctrine for the arts in the Soviet Union, the rigidities of, of socialist uh, realism put a damper on, um, you know, path-breaking uh, films. But nonetheless, good films uh, were made. Um, Eisenstein was still filming, and one of his great, great films was Alexander Nesky in 1989, which was, of course, hailed for its anti-German sentiment only after uh, the Germans attacked the Soviet Union. It, 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 there are some amusing stories about that film. Uh, it was made, it was 
was shown. Uh, it, of course, deals with the 13th century encounter <coughs> between the forces of uh, Prince Alexander and the uh, Teutonic Knights. Uh, and um, it was uh, very, very nationalistically uplifting. <coughs> uh, and uh, when the Nazi-Soviet pact was signed in August of 1939, the film was banned. And there are stories about how in the middle of projections at certain theaters, <laughs> the lights went on, the film was uh, shut down. And then in 1941, the Soviet Union is attacked by their erstwhile allies, Nazi Germany, and the film comes back into circulation and indeed becomes a, uh, an extraordinarily uh, energy uh, and, and, and patriotism boosting uh, film. Now, I decided one, one more film after that, the uh, Ivan the Terrible yes. series, right? But that's after, you know, I, sort of at the end of the war. Yeah, he, he makes that, uh, he makes up part one of that film, uh, in, I believe, Kazakhstan, uh, the, the Soviet film industry moved eastward, east of the, uh, Urals, um, out of, uh, the danger zone, uh, and, um, uh, that film is criticized by Stalin personally. Stalin, of course, was a great, great film buff, uh, the misfortune of Soviet filmmakers. He insisted on final cuts over every Soviet, uh, film. Um, and, uh, he, he criticized it on a number of grounds, and, uh, Eisenstein makes a sequel right after the war, um, Ivan the Terrible Part Two, which is banned uh, and only released after uh, Stalin's uh, death. And Eisenstein's career is, uh, you know, is is filled with uh, certain triumphs. Uh, the film Potemkin, uh, the film October or Ten Days that Shook the World, Alexander Nevsky, Ivan <coughs> uh, the Terrible Part One, but at the same time, uh, major major disappointments. Uh, he, he started a film called Vision Meadow, um, based, I think, on a tale um, of Turgenev's, or he takes off from a tale of Turgenev's. Uh, and that film uh, is, uh, production on that film is stopped. Uh, and, uh, and we have only some surviving frames uh, from it. And um, projects for other films were uh, stopped in their tracks. Uh, by uh, the, um, the the rigid party state establishment supervising film. Yeah, I saw his movie. There's a part, a fragment about his movie about the the uh, Mexican Revolution, which didn't get finished, if I recall correctly. Uh, yes, something called Viva Mexico, um, <coughs> which uh, which he films. He has. I think I had an interesting episode where he comes to Hollywood uh, and uh, wants to make a film, but for one reason after another, the idea breaks down. He goes to Mexico and makes this uh, quite extraordinary film, which also had a very, very hard time in the Soviet Union <coughs> about uh, native uh, Mexican life. Yes, I remember some of the images there. Of the, 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 he talks about the noble visages, as are almost Lenny Reifenstahlish in a way. Uh, uh, the way she talks about uh, in, in her movie about the uh, um, the uh, Africans that she's done, what she did later in her life. Um, but yeah, the thing that you get to again, getting back to this issue of the working classes, I had not realized uh, until I was reading your uh, your book that just how uninterested the Soviet public was in Soviet cinema. In what? In Soviet cinema. You know, the things that we, uh, and, you know, they tend to hold up and say, wow, this is great stuff. Oh, oh you mean some of the masterpieces are classic? <laughs> All right. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's certainly true that um, Potemkin uh, could not compete with um, with what Hollywood was turning out uh, in the 1920s. Uh, the Soviet public would much rather see uh, 
um, uh, Mary Pickford or Charlie Chaplin <laughs> or Douglas Fairbanks than uh, some of the what in the Western world were hailed as uh, as classics of cinema. Did they have yeah, access to that at the, in the twenties during the new uh, the new economic period? And then, uh, how was that translate into the in the sixties of sixties and seventies? I mean, did people go off to see? I mean, some of these I know they were they would you know one tactic was to have very restricted audiences for certain movies. Uh, I think a tar, uh, like a Tarkovsky movie might get very limited audiences. But what happened with something like you know with Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors? Did people go see that, or was that? Relatively limited. No, you're, you're quite right. Uh, there were um, categories of um, defining distribution uh, capabilities, and certain films were uh, of limited. Those that were in bands, right? Uh, I mean, there were films that <coughs> made in the 60s and 70s that were bands, as we've discussed. <coughs> but there were other films that were uh, released, but only in limited distribution. That was certainly true. And as for foreign films uh, in the 60s and 70s and the early 80s, uh, you know, uh, a certain circle got to see them. Uh, people in the film world had got copies uh, for private uh, screenings and so on, but the general public did not see the overwhelming number of films from France, Germany, England and the U.S. Uh, uh, and uh, that start, again, that started happening uh, later. Um, and uh, in the post-Soviet period, um, uh, post-Soviet films uh, were pretty much shunned in favor of especially American blockbusters. Uh, but given the choice, I think, given the choice of, say, a uh, typical uh, uh, Muscovite of, say, middle age, would he or she uh, rather see a, an old Soviet film, uh, a contemporary post-Soviet film, or a Western film? And I think the choice would be for an old Soviet film, you know, uh, uh, among the better ones. Um, and secondly, possibly, uh, a Western film, and last, a contemporary uh, post-Soviet film. Now, what, uh, what, you know, I mentioned this, you know, Tarkovsky, I think, have got limited dis distribution. What about Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors, just as, a, as an example of, a, you know, I can't think of anything ideologically problematic about it, for its, uh, you know, stylistic innovations. It's a beautiful, beautiful film, one of the most beautiful uh, and moving films ever made in the, in the uh, Soviet Union uh, by the, um, I think it was Armenian, wasn't he, Parizhanov? Parizhanov uh, himself got into trouble because he was gay, and in fact he was imprisoned a, a couple of different times on uh, trumped-up uh, charges. So, uh, that might have led to a limited distribution for uh, his film. And it's a matter, it's a case like one of those cases again where his film is um, hailed in the West uh, and little known, I would say, on the part of the average uh, post Soviet Russian public. Unless they're Ukrainian, they probably know it. I know that, I'm sorry, I know that for a fact because. I remember an incident a few years ago with a, um, a, a woman that I met in uh, Petersburg, actually. She's now living in the United States, and she was a film person. She was actually involved in the, uh, the, the, the Soviet and post-Soviet film world. Uh, and I remember talking to her about Paris on a film, and she said she had never seen it, and maybe not even have heard of it. Um, so, you know, it does address uh, your point. Yeah, because I think I think Ukrainians may know it better simply because of its or you know that it takes place in the Carpathians. The Carpathians, yeah, uh, the, foot, the foot 
That exactly the whole souls, yeah. And so the other, th- uh, you know, so you get, you know, th- that. Pe- but that's a peculiarity. I first saw it at the Harvard Ukrainian uh, summer school, and you cl- couldn't understand it because my Ukrainian was so weak. Uh, and the things I did understand were things that were spoken in Russian, I think, because my I was able to make uh, my knowledge of Polish somehow corresponded better with the Russian at that point than it did with the Ukrainian. Well, you can, apart from the linguistic uh, dimensions of the film, you can appreciate it purely on visual grounds. It's a beautiful, beautiful film, beautifully uh, shot, uh, with that amazing uh, opening scene where I think he has a camera mounted on the top of a uh, (coughs) pine tree as it's being cut down, and uh, you, the viewer, go down with the pine tree as it gets to the ground. Um, and it's interesting to note, by the way, I'm glad you know you brought up this uh, subject that we tend to think of Soviet films as Russian films, but we should also recognize that the non-Russian republics were also making films, whether it was Ukraine or, or Belarusia or uh, uh, Latvia or uh, Estonia, uh, and. Uh, uh, in ranking films, if I were ever to compile a 10 greatest uh, Soviet films, uh, I, I would say that Parizhanov's uh, <coughs> Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors would be at the top of the list. But a, a, another non-Russian film would also qualify, in my estimate, uh, and that is uh, an extraordinary film called Pirosmani, is a Georgian film by the filmmaker Shangalaya uh, about a Georgian artist at the turn of the century. A very, very sad uh, uh, life. He was an alcoholic and he was reduced to poverty and uh, uh, gave his uh, paintings to innkeepers for uh, a room and board and, uh, and so on. And it's a beautiful, beautiful film uh, based on Pirosmani's sort of modern primitive paintings um, with attempts on the part of the filmmaker to recreate scenes from the paintings uh, in the film. And uh, there are times when you're looking at the film and you don't know whether you're looking at a painting or whether you're looking at a uh, a tableau vivant uh, of an actual scene being shot in front of the camera. Um, So uh, (laughs) those two films uh, should make it clear that not all Soviet films were Russian films. Yeah, no, I'm glad you mentioned the Georgia because I was you were mentioning all the other places. I, you know, I didn't notice you mentioned uh, here in the book. You, I think you interview. Uh, do you interview a Georgian? Uh, or I know you talk very much about a George, one of the Georgian filmmakers here. Oh, the Repentance. It was Repentance we were talking about earlier. Yeah, yeah actually, I, I interviewed a, um, a Georgian filmmaker, Nana Tordjadza, uh, you know, a talented filmmaker and actress from uh, Georgia. I also interviewed a, um, a young, he was young at the time, um, filmmaker by the name of Sabadza, uh, and I don't know that, um, I think Georgia has continued to make films beyond the 1990s, uh, but I kind of lost track of Sabadza. Uh, and, um, and, and it was interesting getting a, quote, Georgian point of view, unquote, on, um, on Soviet life, on Soviet society, <coughs> on Soviet history. You know, just one. I'm just thinking about the fact that you were showing, you know, when you first were showing these films to your students, or maybe in the later period when you started doing the thematic courses you were talking about. Were the students? These are probably a lot of films that they had never heard of themselves, even though the even the ones that had grown up in the Soviet Union. Is that correct? Yes, that's absolutely correct. But there was another side of it too. They brought to my attention certain films that I hadn't. I might have heard about them, but I hadn't seen. One example of that, I taught a course on uh, 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 Russia uh, in, in Re- Russia in Revolution and Civil War, uh, and I had you know very very fat uh, uh, um, selection of films to choose from. Um, but uh, I remember very vividly after. Um, 
one of those courses, a student, a Soviet immigrant student, telling me, hey, professor, what you really should show is white sun of the desert, which I had not seen. Uh, and I finally tracked down the film, and it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful sort of uh, uh, Soviet-style Western that takes place in Central Asia during the uh, Civil War. Uh, where uh, the Red Army was fighting uh, local uprisings. <clears throat> and it has touches of, uh, of humor uh, that I think are, uh, and, and irony that are unmatched in any Soviet film. There's a movie I saw years ago, uh, well, I was still, this is when I was living in uh, newly independent Ukraine and uh, watching Astan Kino. A fair amount of the time, and uh, there was a movie with Vysotsky playing. It's sort of a post. It's post World War Two. He's playing, I think, a policeman who's tracking, dealing with uh, uh, gangs, sort of post you know, uh, criminal gangs. Do you know the film I'm talking about? In in Russia. Yes. Uh, that might be a, a Morocco film. Um, it, it, it kind of rings a bell. Well, you know, we are coming to the end of our hour. It's been a pleasure talking to you about this. I look. I, I just noticed yesterday a friend of mine who also uh, actually he's a specialist in uh, Soviet and post-Soviet history uh, noted that you can now get uh, a lot of Moss uh, uh, films. Uh, free for download on YouTube, apparently. Yes. Uh, uh, yes. <laughs> I haven't done it yet, but uh, I understand that that's the case, and I think maybe it, um, almost 50 titles are uh, now available. Uh, with, with subtitles, by the way, I think it should be emphasized. Yes, I think the only problem is you have to be able to read Cyrillic because the titles are still in Cyrillic or something like that. No, no, no. I think they, um, the... Um, the press release that I saw indicated that they were subtitled in English. No, the subtitles were in English, but I think you, in order to find the films, they, the films themselves, when you go to look for them on YouTube, may still be in uh, Cyrillic or something. Uh, but uh, in any case, you know, uh, it's... Yeah, it's that would really make it difficult for uh, <laughs> someone who doesn't know Cyrillic to find uh, the titles. Yes, it would. I hope they sort that out. But uh, I was thinking, you know, it's customary at New Books and the New Books uh, Network to ask people to talk about three books that they'd recommend on the subject. And while I don't want to uh, stop you from talking about books, I thought maybe you should, apart from Shadows of, of Forgotten Ancestors, which you made clear you really like, some other movie, Soviet movies you think people should enjoy, which they might not have seen before. Adam's Rib uh, is one film that I would uh, include in that category. Uh, and that did, in fact, have a, a brief run uh, here in New York back in 1991, 1992. Um, uh, as for other films, well, there was a film by uh, Victor Arisco called Satana, uh, Station, uh, in 1992, which uh, I, I thought was a, uh, a quite a a terrific uh, film, also extremely uh, dark and, and extremely consistent with my title of Moscow, uh, Believes in Tears. Um, uh, any film by Sakurov is worth seeing. Um, I think his most, probably his most popular film, uh, his films often are quite opaque and difficult, Lines, whether they're documentaries or features, but his most, I think, accessible and brilliantly realized film is Russian Art, which also had a brief, I think it had a brief run uh, here in the United States, but that certainly is worth seeing. Uh, another film uh, he did on his interpretation of the Chechen War, the war against the Chechens, is called Alexandra. And that is certainly uh, uh, worth seeing. Um, and finally, um, I would uh, cite another film, which was 
put up, I believe, as uh, the Russian uh, uh, nomination for Best Foreign Film in 2004, and that's a film called The Return by Andrei Zyaginsev. Um, also quite dark, <laughs> quite out, uh, and um, uh, I won't give away the ending, but uh, it is, it does again belong to that category of Moscow beliefs and tears. Well, thank you very much, Louis. It's been a pleasure talking to you about films. And I, you know, it is sad as a, you know, if, if those of you who haven't had the pleasure of reading the book yet, uh, you know, to see, you know, the, the sort of disappointment that there aren't a lot of great films coming out right now uh, in, in the, from the former Soviet space. Um, but I suppose that will change again. Well, one hopes. One hopes. I'm sure, you know, there's a lot of talent there, and uh, it's, it's bound to come to the surface in a meaningful uh, way. Can I, can I just point out that the, uh, the book uh, is published by New Academia uh, Publishing, and it's what is known as a, uh, an on-demand, the on-demand book, which means, you know, you won't find it on your shelves of your local bookstore, but you can order it online through Amazon or Barnes & Noble or through the publisher uh, itself, or by telling your local book uh, store uh, dealer to get it for you. Well, of course, we hope you get. I hope that uh, some people will find themselves find it interesting uh, to get. I think it was it's well worth reading, uh, and you know it's a good good insight. To give, if, for those of you who are not familiar, you go, you'll get uh, uh, with Soviet and um, Russian film. You'll get a good introduction. Get a lot of little uh, glimpses of why they're important as historical documents or otherwise. So again, it's been a pleasure, Louis. I thank you for. Uh, coming and find, making time for this interview today. So, uh, till next time, we'll, we'll have another episode of New Books in East European History. Thank you for calling, Louis, and bye bye. Thank you. The pleasure has been mine, you. I'm, uh, I'm very grateful for the time you have spent with me. You've been listening to an interview with Professor Louis Menashe about his book. Moscow Bleeds in Tears, published by New Academia Publishing. I'm Hugo Lane, your host for New Books in East European Studies, and wishing you the best until next time. Bye-bye. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.